Welcome or welcome back to Oswald Didn't Do It, a JFK Research Community Assassination Podcast with an eye on details that intrigue me enough to push me to do a podcast. Oswald didn't do it. This time I look at a name that I'm sure I've heard of before. But there are so many names, so many names. I really think that's part of why so many people can't fathom the JFK case. There are so many names that you bring up a name. Is that the guy who was the person in New Orleans? No, or was he one of the ones with the gun runners in Cuba? Or maybe he was one of those guys from up in Chicago or... Ralph Paul is the name today. Who is Ralph Paul? Ralph Paul was a business associate of Jack Ruby, ran a nightclub along uh, around the same time as Jack Ruby, per Jack Ruby one time. Ralph Paul knows about mo- knows more about me than anyone. The House Select Committee, uh, JFK Assassination Forum here today, um, JFK Assassination Board, um, House Select Committee on uh, HSCA looked at Ralph Paul during their look into Jack Ruby Associates, and we will see what they have to say about him, HSCA wrote that Jack Ruby and Ralph Paul spoke to each other every day, either by telephone or when Paul visits the Carousel Club, which he did at least every Tuesday and Friday. Ruby was constantly in debt to Paul as he needed money to run his nightclubs, and this led to Paul getting a half interest in the Carousel Club until early 1964. Paul would loan Ruby a good deal of money over the years, and one has to wonder if the mob funneled money to Ruby to explain their interests in Dallas, as Ruby seemed to never pay these loans back, but instead gave interest in the business to Paul. Paul might have loaned Ruby fifteen dollars to $17,000 to help with his internal revenue service problem. Paul would tell the FBI that Ruby never repaid any of the loans. This would mean that the money Ruby received from Paul was not a loan, but something else because loans have to be repaid. Paul would also turn over his half interest in the Carousel Club to Ruby's sister, Eva Grant, and ask for nothing in return. The HSCA would write about this in their last contact before Ruby would allegedly shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, I'm going to take a little break here. Jack Ruby knew how the mob worked. He had been in the, uh, in, in Chicago, and was familiar with how the mob worked there, 
And when you go from from Chicago to Dallas, it's basically the same kind of sort of setup. You have lower, uh, you have small fish, you have medium-sized fish, you have big fish. And if you are a small fish and you want to become a medium-sized fish, you have to keep eating enough small fish, enough fish food to get to the point where you are a big enough fish so that you can do some things. And to do that, you have to do things that uh, possibly maybe you didn't want to do. So Ruby was going to have to do some things to move up the levels. And I probably think he probably wanted to move up the levels because I doubt he wanted to be a C minus financially in the hole um, nightclub owner forever. I think he probably wanted to move up, get to be a bit bigger of a fish in the pond and knowing people, getting to know people and turning your nightclub into something successful is a way to do that. Part of that is why he more than likely kept an eye on making sure the police who were rather regularly around the carousel club were properly taken care of. It wasn't necessarily they took out adverts in the um daily police report uh, where you can get free food and free beverage uh, information sheet. No, it wasn't that. But if there was a policeman that would come around, then Ruby would make sure that the policeman knew, yes, you're welcome here. There is no charge for you. Your beverages will be free. And if you happen to stay a little bit past the point where you're not allowed to have certain drinks because it's a little bit too late for that. Well, we can probably make exceptions for you because you are Dallas's finest. So Ruby knew how to treat people and he knew what he had to do to become a medium-sized fish in the Dallas pond. HSCA, let's see, where are we going? Um, HSCA wrote this report about their last contact before Ruby would shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. Quote on. The last personal contact between Ruby and Paul before the Oswald shooting occurred on Thursday night, November 21st, 1963, which would be, um, here the six, uh, the night before, um, when Paul went to the carousel and Ruby, um, Ruby and he went to the Egyptian lounge for dinner, then back to the carousel club. On Friday and Saturday, Ruby made a number of telephone calls to Paul, although the exact number is in doubt. Ha! I'm sure they know exactly how many there were. Paul's Warren Commission and other testimony are somewhat confusing and occasionally contradictory concerning these calls. The first came shortly after the assassination, where Ruby wanted to know if Paul had heard the tragic news. Several hours later, Ruby called Paul to state that he was closing the carousel club for the weekend, and Paul should probably do the same with the bullpen. Paul declined, saying that he had an eating place rather than a burlesque club at approximately 6 p.m. Paul stated that 
Ruby called to let Paul know he would be attending synagogue service services that evening. Paul said he was not interested in accompanying Ruby. Paul also mentioned another call at about 8.40 on, let me see now, is this Friday or Saturday? Friday. On Saturday, November 23rd, there was an afternoon call and another in the early evening. There were several calls Saturday evening, including a controversial call to the bullpen, which was partially overheard by one bullpen employee, Wanda Helmick. She told the FBI, no, she, yeah, she told the FBI that Paul had said he had a date with Tammy True, Nancy Powell, one of the carousel da dancers that evening. Then she heard Paul ask Ruby if he was crazy or perhaps have lost your mind. Helmick also recalled something being said about a gun. She stated Paul spoke of this on Sunday, November 24th, and mentioned something about a gun at that time. Obviously, if this were true, this information would be crucial in determining Ruby's intent that weekend. All other bullpen employees on duty that evening were interviewed. None could corroborate Helmick's statements. When questioned by the Warren Commission, Paul never mentioned a call from Ruby to the bullpen on Saturday night, although he admitted receiving a call on Saturday. In a November 24, 1963 FBI interview, Paul stated that his last contact with Ruby was a 3 p.m. call on Saturday. Telephone records, however, indicate a nine-minute call from Ruby to the bullpen at 10.44 p.m. Hmm. In a September 1st, 1964 interview, FBI interview, Paul admitted the craze remark, hereby, thereby implicitly admitting a Saturday night call to the bullpen, and explained it by stating that it referred to the closing of Ruby's club rather than Ruby himself or any plans that he may have made. Paul remained certain that he never made a statement about Ruby's gun to anyone. To anyone. Shortly after receiving this call at the bullpen, Paul said he went home, leaving work, that he felt ill. This information was given to Ruby when he again called the bullpen, and Ruby's next call to the bullpen, uh, next call was to Paul's home. Paul said it was 10 or 10.30 p.m. Apparently, Ruby wanted Paul to go 
somewhere with him, but Paul refused. Another call came approximately at 11.30 p.m. with Paul saying Ruby was at Eva Grant's apartment. By this time, Paul was annoyed, telling Ruby that he was not feeling well and not to call again. The telephone records differ in some respects from Paul's memory and show a one-minute call from the carousel to the bullpen at 11.18, an identical two-minute call at 11.36, and a one-minute call from the carousel to Paul's home at 11.57. If Paul, quote off, if Paul had no knowledge of what was to come and wasn't involved in any way, why was Ruby calling him so much? What could they have had to talk about this often? The repetitive nature of these calls could lead someone to think that Ruby was updating him on how things were going, or Ruby could have also been trying to get out of having to do the shooting, and that this could have been why Paul felt sick and told him to stop calling. There is no doubt that Ruby was indebted to Paul and whoever Paul's backers were as owning to as owning a drive-in eating establishment wouldn't seem to provide Paul with as much money as he had. Furthermore, if Paul had no involvement, why would he misrepresent the amount of time that he that uh, Ruby called him? There's no reason to be dishonest if you are if you are not involved in any way. It all goes to a whole bunch of different kind of stuff that we keep running into in the JFK assassination. That just don't make no sense. It just don't make no sense. One of the questions, one of the questions I'm going to, I can't remember if I said this was the last one or not, but somebody decides they're going to defend the Oswald did it thing. Oswald, bang, bang, bang. Okay. Now, where does he put the gun? Does he put it where the Mauser was found? Because we know where the Mauser was found. Found behind a bunch of boxes in the center of the room. We know where that was found. But if you're going to put the Mauser, or if you're going to put the Manlicker Carcano near the Mauser, why didn't they find the Manlicker Carcano? And where did the Manlicker Carcanos come from? I don't know. It's just so frustrating. Um, yeah. Ralph Paul seems to be a person who probably knew a little bit more than he was interested in explaining. And it's frustrating. Um, if Oswald was the lone trigger man, why would there have been any pressure on Jack Ruby? Why would there have been any pressure on Jack Ruby? Why would Jack Ruby have kept calling Ralph Paul? It makes no sense. Unless, of course, Oswald didn't do it, in which case it makes all the sense in the world. Thanks for stopping by. I will have another podcast up soon. I hope you stick around and enjoy it. Thanks for stopping by.